We sang a song earlier that said, I love to tell the old, old story. There's something about old stories. Sometimes when we hear a story again and again, it's easy to just kind of pass through it, to hurry by and say, oh, I've heard that story before. I'm familiar with that. I know what that's all about. Sometimes we've heard a story and we misremember it, or maybe we've been told it one way, but that's not the way it actually happened. And other times we begin watching a story and we recognize that it looks a lot like another story. We say, oh, I know where this story is going. And we have a story, we have ideas of what story is about. And so I want us to read this story today and kind of think in those terms. To think about these patterns that we have sometimes. And I think of watching movies sometimes. For example, the Hallmark Channel. Now, so some of you are like the Hallmark Channel. But if you've ever watched a Hallmark Channel movie, there's something comforting about them, but there's also something kind of predictable about them, isn't there? That you know that at the beginning, the woman who runs the bakery florist shop bookstore, who comes to the small town because she's running away from her parents or because someone's died or because something's happening, is going to end up married to the farmer, firefighter, handyman, or the evil corporate guy who's trying to take over her company. And you can watch the movie and you can know at the end that the two are going to end up together and they're going to be happy. Because there's a pattern, there's a set pattern in the story. The Bible uses the same sort of things, not that exact same pattern, certainly. But the Bible has story patterns to it. And if we know the stories, if we read our Bible regularly, we begin to recognize some of those stories and we'll see one of those today. But we also sometimes have, when we read in particular stories like this one today, We've maybe heard this story before, and we've formed ideas in our mind. One of those ideas that I know I often form in my mind is about who this woman was and what sort of person she was. And as I often heard about this story and maybe even read this story myself, I assumed that this woman was an immoral woman, that she was loose, that there was something wrong with her, that she was a bad woman. But I've come to a different picture of her. And so what I want us to do is kind of go through this story and see what's happening. And see what an old, old story might speak to us today. Because that's the other thing about these stories we read in the Bible. They're not simply for entertainment. They're not simply for us to go and say, oh, that was a good story. I really enjoyed that. But instead, they're stories meant to teach us. But more than just teach us. The goal isn't to walk away from hearing a story in the Bible and say, I know something more now. I know a little bit more about Jews and Samaritans. The goal of the stories in the Bible are for us to be changed and to be transformed. To become different people, to understand who God is, and then to our lives to be different. So we're in John chapter 4. We've been doing this series on John's gospel. We've been introduced to Jesus, who is the creator, who is the word of God, and he's come into the world and We've seen in the first few chapters this introduction to who Jesus is and what he's like. And we see some of the patterns that begin to develop as John tells the story of Jesus. That oftentimes Jesus says something and people misunderstand him because Jesus is speaking in metaphor and people are hearing in a literal way. Jesus has introduced himself and he's come to a wedding and he's created wine out of water. A representation of God's abundance and grace in this new water that's coming. Jesus has spoken of himself as the new temple, 
the new place where heaven and earth, where God's space and human space meet, the place where God is on earth. And last week, we were introduced to this first encounter that Jesus has one-on-one with an individual, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And there's these sort of conversations, and Jesus introduces himself as the one who will bring salvation to the world, as the one who is asking for people to put their faith in him. And Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the one who knows all things, kind of walks away a little bit baffled. And so we're set up now, and we hear this story, and it begins in chapter 4. It says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing disciples. And so we're setting up that there's a conflict going on. Something's happening in the story. And then it simply says, now he, meaning Jesus, had to go through Samaria. Should have brought a map to put up on the screen, but in a sense, he did have to go through. So if he was down and he was headed north, going back to Galilee, the straightest, most direct route would be through Samaria. But back then, the Jews tended to go the long way around. They went a different way. And maybe you grew up and the same sort of thing happened. There was, a, there was an easy way to get from where you live to another place, but then there was this other part of town. Maybe the city, you said, well, I don't want to go there. That's the the bad part of town, right? And so you'd take the bypass. In fact, our highway systems are designed... I'm not going to go on that tangent. We often try and design these systems what to bypass certain parts of the city and certain parts of the town. And that's the way the Jews were with the Samaritans. That they avoided them. And we're going to hear this phrase, and again and again, if you heard the story read, said a whole bunch of times, in case you forgot, that there were Samaritans and Jews. So what's the deal with those people. What's going on? And we'll come back to that. But what we see is Jesus is crossing a boundary. This language of he had to go. Well, why did he have to go? Because that's what God wanted him to do. This language of had to go. He went and he crossed these boundaries. And it says, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given him to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. All right. Here's one of those patterns, one of those stories that we know if we read our Bible regularly. A man comes to a well. And so if we flip back in all our pages and go back to the beginning of the Bible, back to the book of Genesis, there are several times where a man goes to a well. First, it's Abraham's servant looking for his wife for his son Isaac. And then later, Jacob also searching for a wife. And the story goes something like this. A man goes to a well searching for a wife. There's a woman there. He asks her for a drink. She gives him a drink. And then she goes back and brings her family to meet the man. Man comes to a well, asks for a drink. And the story concludes with the woman going to bring her family back to meet the man. And all in the midst of that, there's a couple things that happen. Is One is they end up married together. But the other is that these people, Isaac, who marries the woman at the well, and then Jacob, who marries the woman at the well, are a continuation of God's story. In other words, God uses a man meeting a woman at a well to continue his story and to bring blessing to the world. And you might already begin to think, 
Huh, that sounds familiar. But also, man coming to a well and meets a woman there, if you've been a reader of the Bible, you think, oh, I know what happens. Man comes to the well and he meets his wife there. So now we have Jesus coming to a well. And you're thinking, oh, Jesus is about to meet his wife? What's going on here? And then it says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and you're thinking, okay, this is not where I expected this to go. A Samaritan woman? Wait a minute. Jesus is getting married, and he's getting married to a Samaritan woman? Well, first of all, isn't it interesting John says a Samaritan woman came? Because where is Jesus right now? In Samaria. So, but John wants to make the point, in case you've forgotten where Jesus is, that this is a Samaritan woman and what that all means. And then we kind of get the hint that, well, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And we get this, Jesus asking, well, will you give me a drink? And she responds as you might expect. Well, the Samaritan woman said to him, Again, reminder, she's a Samaritan woman. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So John wants us to understand clearly that there's some animosity between the two. So quick history lesson. So why did the Jews and the Samaritans not get along? We have to go back in time from Jesus about 700 years. At that time, the nation of Israel was divided into two parts. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom called Israel, southern kingdom called Judah. And around 722 BC, the empire of Assyria comes in and conquers the northern kingdom. And what the Assyrians do is they take out all of the, the rich people, the leaders of the land, and they take them out and they scatter them all over because they, what they want to do is when they conquer a country, they want to erase that country from existence. They want to ex erase the people from existence. So they take them all out. And then they bring in people from all over to intermarry with the folks, to kind of erase any sense of national pride, any sense of ethnic connection. So you've got the northern kingdom of Israel that's been taken apart. Foreigners have been brought in. They're intermarrying. A little while later, the southern kingdom is also sent into exile. Looks a little bit different, but they return in a slightly different way. And they return to their country and they look up to the north and they see this country where all these people have intermarried. They violated one of the fundamental beliefs of what God has given to them, that they're not supposed to intermarry with other people. And so they see them as having gone to the dark side. They failed in what they're supposed to do. They're not being good Jews. They're half-breeds. And the Samaritans think, well, we've continued on in our faith. We've been doing exactly what we're supposed to do. And they've been keeping the books of Moses, the first five books, and they've held tight to those. And so there's this animosity that's gone on between these two. And so when we get a Jew and a Samaritan and Jesus going through Samaria... We're set up with this sense of animosity that something's going to go wrong. And so this woman is just astonished that Jesus would even talk to her. A Jew talking to a Samaritan, and more than that, a man talking to a woman, because that's not how we do things around here. That wasn't the normal and proper way to do it. 
But I want us to notice a couple things of what Jesus does here. First of all, what Jesus has done is crossed this boundary into Samaria when people have said, oh, you don't go there. Jesus says, no, I'm going there. I'm going to this place. I'm going to cross these boundaries, that, this animosity, this us and this them. There is no us and them. Jesus breaks that down and says, I'm going to go into this other place because that's why I've come. So that language of he had to go because Jesus came to bring and to show God's love to just a few people, to the world. And so when Jesus crosses this boundary, he says, this is what it looks like to go on mission with God. This is what God's mission looks like. Is It's not just for some people, but it's for all people. And I'm going to cross whatever boundaries that people have set up. I'm going to break down those barriers that we have created as people, the divisions between us and them, between Republicans and Democrats, between Muskegon and Muskegon Heights, between all these different places, between whites and blacks, between Northerners and Southerners, between Packers fans and Giants fans, whatever. All these different kind of barriers and boundaries that people have set up. Jesus is saying, I've come and I'm breaking those down. And then he comes to this woman. And I want us to think about this woman a little bit. And we're going to kind of continue on with her. That she, what does he do? He asks her for a drink. He could have very well said, give me a drink, woman. But he asks her. He begins to give her dignity. He begins to what? See her not as the other, but as a person. He begins to see her as a person. And we're going to come back to who she is and how this all works. But then we begin this exchange and it gets really confusing because Jesus, you know, asked, after he asked for a drink, the woman says, well, why would you do that? And then Jesus says, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And if you're listening in on the story, you, like the Samaritan woman, might be a little bit confused. Because Jesus has just asked for a drink. And the woman says, well, what, you're asking me for a drink? And then all of a sudden, Jesus is talking about living water and the gift of God. And you think, well, wait, wait a minute, what's going on? And so the woman says, well, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? So what's going on? Jesus is talking about living water and drawing from the well. And the woman is still sitting there looking at the well, this physical well sitting in front of her and saying, you don't even have a bucket. How do you plan to get this living water? You're the one who's asking me for a drink. And Jesus goes on, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is to ask for a drink, he says, everyone who asks for Drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I, I give them will never thirst. Indeed, I, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so you get this back and forth between literal and metaphor and, and what's going on. And this is something that Jesus does often. He kind of mixes these two things up. The woman's thinking about the well sitting right there. Because she's just had a guy come up to her and say, what? Can I have a drink? And she says, well, wait, you know, you're a Jew. You're asking me for a drink from a Samaritan. And then he says, well, let me tell you about living water. And she says, well, what are you talking? You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get this? And it goes back and forth. And what we're getting is here's Jesus describing himself as the water of life. 
He's God's word. He's the wisdom. He's the spirit. He's the temple. And this woman's thinking, yeah, I want some of that. Because she's thinking, wouldn't it be great if I just had water and I didn't have to come back to this well every day? I didn't have to make this walk to get the buckets and take it back to the house. And she even says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here. And once again, the conversation takes this strange turn where Jesus says, Well, go call your husband and come back. I don't know about you, but talking with Jesus seems exhausting. (laughs) Well, give me a drink, woman. Well, okay, but we don't get along. Well, let me tell you about this living water. Well, you have a bucket. Okay, well, but how am I going to get this water? Go call your husband. Wait, wait a minute. Where did this come from? And she says, well, I don't have a husband. You know? And Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. And then here Jesus goes on. He says, the fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And so here's that part in the story where often we get this idea that she's an immoral woman. You know, that she's been running around, that she's had five different husbands, and now she's shacking up with this other guy who's not even her husband. But if we roll back to the first century, a couple things we want to think about is, one is, a woman had no power to divorce her husband. The right to divorce belonged solely to the man in the house. The other thing that we know about is it has nowhere said that she's an immoral woman. Does Jesus engage her in any way and say, yeah, you had five husbands and you're a horrible, lousy woman? He simply makes a statement of fact. Now it's entirely possible, and as I've begun to read this thing more, it's like, one, it's possible that she was divorced, that five different men divorced her. Or it's possible that what was going on is that some of her husbands had died. That she had lost husbands and she was continuing on. And so, no matter how we see it, and as we read later down in the story, when she goes back to the town, the people don't shun her and cast her off. They listen to what she has to say. Which makes me think, if she were this immoral, loose woman that everybody kind of pushed to the side, would they really listen to what she had to say? Or is she simply a woman who has experienced immense amounts of pain and tragedy in her life, whether being divorced by husbands or having lost husbands to death, which was not uncommon? And sometimes we read it, well, well, she was at the well at noon because she didn't want to be around the other women. It never says that. It's something we as modern interpreters have kind of read into. Well, she must be there because nobody, she's ashamed of it. Maybe she had to work really hard that morning at home, and so she ends up at the well at noon. We don't know why. But the important thing is she comes in the day to the well, and there's this woman. And so here's this woman who continues to engage with Jesus. And we notice that Jesus, in the same way, never condemns her, never mentions some sort of immorality in her life. But what I would invite us to see, rather, is instead this woman who has suffered immense amounts of pain and loss and hurt in her life. And here she is, and Jesus is engaging her. Jesus gives her dignity. He restores that dignity to her and says, I'm going to have this conversation with you. And when she asks questions, he doesn't say, well, that's a foolish question. What are you talking about? In fact, she goes on and asks this question. 
In the next verse in 19 and 20, she says, I can see that you are a prophet. Now that language is John's way of saying she's seeing because I want us to think about the story that just happened before this. We had Nicodemus who comes when? He comes to meet Jesus at night. What's harder to do at night? It's harder to see. The woman meets Jesus at the well in the middle of the day when it's light, and she sees. In other words, John uses this language often of seeing and not seeing, and he says, she has seen who he is, and then goes on and says, I can see you're a prophet. And then I think she asks a perfectly legitimate question. She's like, well, if you're a prophet, you can answer this question I have. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, and the Jews claim where we must worship is in Jerusalem, this 700-year-old feud about things going on. And she asks this genuine question, and Jesus responds about the nature of worship. And he goes on, and we're not going to have time. There's a whole lot. This is one of those stories that's got a whole lot packed into it. All kinds of different things going on. But he says this in verse 21. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What he goes on to say is that essentially God is reclaiming the whole world. God is reclaiming the whole world. And it's not about where we worship. Where he says, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father and the Spirit of truth. For they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. So it's a question of where does God go? You see, the Jews and Samaritans had set up these little tents, these little boundaries and said, God is here. And the, the other group is saying, no, God is here. In other words, God belongs to us. And the other group is saying, no, God belongs to us. He's closer to us here. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way it is anymore. He's saying God has a much bigger tent than this, that the Samaritans can now worship and worship anywhere just as the Jews can worship anywhere because the new temple has come. And what has Jesus talked about before? He's the new temple. And so he says, Jesus is saying, I've come, and God is drawing this much bigger tent that all these boundaries that we've created about who God belongs to and where God sits are all gone now that Jesus has come. And the woman continues on. Well, I know Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. If we read the rest of the story of the gospel, it's much later, most of the time in the stories, and especially if we read the other gospels, oftentimes what does Jesus do when people think he's the Messiah? They don't tell anybody. But here is a woman, a Samaritan woman. Remember, she's a Samaritan. Jesus has crossed this boundary, and she says, well, I, you know, I know Messiah is coming, and Jesus doesn't say, yeah, he's coming someday and one day you'll recognize him and you'll figure it out And if you read the scripture and you do a little bit better. What does Jesus say? You're talking to him right now. Jesus tells her who he is and what he's all about. And again, what is he doing here? He is restoring to her. He has given her the privilege of knowing who he is. He hasn't looked down and said, oh, yeah, you've had all these husbands, and you're here at the well in the middle of the day, and you're a Samaritan, and you're a woman. He says, but instead, what I'm going to give to you right now is one of the most valuable things you can know, that the person you're talking to right now is the Messiah. 
He has taken her from the depths and he has taken her out of this and has given her this dignity. And we didn't read the rest of the story, but I want to quickly cross that and then wrap up with some thoughts on what do we do with this story. It goes on and says the disciples return and they're wondering, well, what are you doing talking to a Samaritan woman? Why would you be doing that? Except they don't ask him that. It's more just a question of like, they're talking to each other. Because they maybe at this point in the story at least learned you don't question Jesus. Verse 28, though, that says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town. So the woman has made this trip in the middle of the hot Middle Eastern day to get water. She meets this man and has this bizarre conversation with him and questions. And at the end, he says he's the Messiah. He's the rescuer. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the one who's coming to make all things right. And she leaves the water jar behind. And she goes and she tells the people in the town about it. And eventually they all come back to hear. The story ends in in verse 42. We no longer believe, this is the townspeople who've come out to see Jesus, because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man truly is the Savior of the world. So this woman, without even being told to go tell people about Jesus, she has this encounter where she realizes that what she has been searching for can be found in him. And in a sense, we can see that water jar is this representation of the things we look for in life to fulfill our needs. Because remember that conversation she has with Jesus where it's about this water and she's thinking about physical water and going thirsty and saying, no, I can give you living water and you'll never thirst again. In other words, I will fulfill all your needs. I will fulfill all your wants. And so she leaves the physical water jar behind recognizing that Jesus has fulfilled it all. And it's a picture and part of what we are often like and this theme of living water will come up again for Jesus, that we often go and try and find lots of things to fulfill the needs we have in life. We have needs for relationship. We have need for security. We have need for peace. We have all these needs, but often we start looking and trying to fulfill fill them in other places. We have needs for relationship. So it may be we go desperately to social media and we're looking and we're wanting likes and follows and we're looking for it there. Or we grow older and we find we go from relationship to relationship to try and fill this need. But what we find is no matter how often we come back, it's never enough that we keep having to go back to the well again and again and again to fulfill that need. But what Jesus is saying is, I can fill that need. I can fill the need you need for security that we look for it in our jobs, in our bank book, in our status. We think if we have that, if I get to this place, then I will be secure. But what we find is no matter how many times we come to that well of security and drill the bucket, the bucket empties out, the jar empties out. And Jesus is saying, I can fill it for you. And the woman demonstrates what it looks like to follow Jesus and to say, I don't need any more this jar because I realize this jar will never fulfill the hurts, the pains that I've experienced because of the loss in my life, because of what's going on in my community. I can't fill. I have found instead the one who can fill my needs. And she leaves her jar behind. 
And she goes to tell others. And so we might ask ourselves, what are the wells we're coming to to try and fill our lives up? What are the things that we're looking to to say, if I have this, then my life will be complete? And that's not to say those other things are important. Jobs and security and a house and all those things are important. Having relationships is an important part of who we are. But it's are we looking for those who are the ultimate value, the thing to only replace. And so what are the jars, what are the wells that you're coming to to try and fill your life? And Jesus, in some part, is inviting us to say, I am the living water, so I want you to invite to leave your jar behind. But then Jesus is also inviting us to say, when you leave the jar behind, go and tell others about it. Go and tell others that you have found the one who is living water and bring them to the well to drink. That's what she does. She goes and she brings them back to the people. So maybe you're at that place where you found the one who is living water, the one we call Jesus. You found life and hope and peace in him. And Jesus is saying, don't just stay at the well. But go instead to bring others and say, here is the one who is living water. When you have that friend who's going from thing to thing to thing and looking for hope and peace and relationship and saying, I have found the one who gives me hope. I have found the one who is living water. And you bring them to him. Because Jesus is the one who is living water. He invites us to drink, to find life in him. And Jesus is the one who crosses the boundaries, who goes and brings healing and life to his enemies. And so we might be thinking, oh, well, I can tell my friends about it, but Jesus isn't saying, don't, it's, this message isn't just for your friends. This message is for everyone. And we're invited to enter into this life of Jesus to cross into Samaria. And so there's lots of different ways you may take the message this Sunday. You may even take it somewhere I haven't even thought of yet. It may be a place where you're looking and you're saying, I have this jar and I'm trying to fill it and it's not filling my life. And then maybe the invitation to you is turn to Jesus and find in him living water. The place you may be is you have found the living water and now you are being called to go and to share that living water with others. To invite them to come back to the well. And you may be even invited to cross into Samaria into a place that's uncomfortable for you, to go to the place of your enemies, to follow the way of Jesus and to enter into the place that's the place of the people that you don't get along with and to share with them the good news of who Jesus is. Jesus is living water. He's the one who invites us to drink and to find life in him. So may you find life in him and having drunk from that well, may you leave the jars of your old life behind and go and bring others to find life in Jesus, the one who is life and living water. Amen.